has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, we've been following this Gilgo serial case since uh, last Thursday. Already it's been uh, it's been over nine days since this investigation has gone on. Um, the, the search isn't finished. Uh, the house, they're going over with over it with a fine-tooth comb and what they started today or even not even today yesterday was the excavation of the property and you may ask why are they excavating the property they're not doing it because they want to they're doing it because there's a good reason to you know they definitely have reason to believe that victims were brought to that location so what are they searching for they're searching for potentially uh, body parts, uh, discarded clothing, anything that he may have buried on that property. And they also used some technology. I pulled up something from FBI agent Bobby Chacon, who put this on LinkedIn. He said, I see many true crime pundits out there calling for the use of ground-penetrating radar in the Long Island serial killer case. I have used GPR on numerous cases to very limited effectiveness. Unless a body is contained, as several of my cases were, in some type of non-biodegradable casing like a 50-gallon drum, human remains decay quickly over time so that all is left could be bones, which show up on GPR looking like any other stick, tree limb, root, or numerous other things. Inevitably, the entire yard should be excavated by an experienced crime scene team, so narrowing in on a single area of that yard would not be very effective. Although it will take time and lots of labor, the better course of action would be a complete excavation of the entire yard which is likely to happen anyway even with the deployment of gpr which could delay things while investigators spend time digging up numerous false hits the fbi stopped using group penetrating radar in cases where human remains were buried and not suspected to be contained uh, as some kind of hard casing gpr is an excellent tool in cases looking for hardened targets like a gas pipeline a 50 gallon drum etc but when looking for small objects with unknown and irregular shapes and that decompose over time that has been proven to be of limited value. A complete and thorough excavation is needed and doesn't require GPR unless it is used to locate gas and water lines to be avoided during the excavation. So that's from Bobby Chacon, an experienced uh, FBI agent who's done these searches before. You know, folks, we, many of us from the NYPD, searched the biggest crime scene probably in the history of the country, and that was Ground Zero after 9-11. And we searched those uh, the rubble there. We used to call it the pile. We searched it for weeks afterwards. And bodies were recovered in different layers of, of the pile. And so we, we know what it's like. And I'm sure they used all of this technology there, even though there was so so much debris and so many things dangerous things in your way at that location. What have they recovered that have, has made them do this 
excavation of the property. And that's being kept very close to the vest. What have they recovered inside that house? Of course, it made it to the news this week that uh, he had over 200 or 300 guns. They never came up with a uh, solidified number. He had 94 registered guns and a couple of hundred guns. He was a collector. And that was not, it, apparently there was false information that he, that he had a soundproof room. That wasn't verified by Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. Maybe what people were referring to was the vault he had where he kept his firearms. In any event, he had a private area in the basement, and it's feared that some of the victims, or one of the victims at least, could have been taken here. How about potential souvenirs? You hear everyone using that term. But serial killers uh, readily take souvenirs from their victims to relive the actual crime that they've committed. So certainly in the search of this house, they were looking for things like that. Jewelry, clothing, handbags, uh, shoes, any and all of those things to potentially tie a victim with together to this defendant. So these are all the things. That's why they've been there for so long at this crime scene and realized that they also searched a storage facility and his home or land in South Carolina, as well as a timeshare, I believe, in Las Vegas. So all of these things will take time to connect the dots, to put these things together is a voluminous, huge job for law enforcement. And what better way for me to uh, attack this situation and bring this situation to you than to have some compadres with me. And I want to introduce first former NYPD sergeant, uh, professor, law degree. He teaches at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut. And welcome to the show, Mike Geary. How you doing, Mike? Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Good evening. Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you. You're the voice of reason. When I get outrageous and emotional, you pull it back in for me. And we, and we also have with us tonight uh, attorney, mother of five, actress, and, of course, new to the game but an outstanding podcaster. Welcome to the show, Melanie Little. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Bill, Mike, good to see you guys. Mike, you might have to play mediator tonight. I'm just warning you. All right. Referee. <laughs> uh, Melanie brought her boxing glove uh, with her. I, I, oh, I, had to, I know. I had I'm going to gonna try not to be controversial tonight. I had to keep it on the DL in the beginning. And she was, we were going to have the show before the show. I said, save it for the show, you know, <laughs> save it for the show. Anyway, we'll, let's start out with Mike. You saw what they were doing today, excavating the property. They've been there uh for i believe uh, over nine days uh they said that they may be there for a couple of more days they may be leave as soon as tomorrow or they may be there till the weekend what do you take what are you taking away from this mike well you know it all makes a lot of sense to start excavating that yard and looking around because um there were reports that uh, the neighbors saw him uh you know making little fires in his backyard and he wasn't the barbecue kind of guy so that's re really suspicious. And, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, knowing what we know now about him, it's possible he may have been burning uh, maybe a victim's clothing, a piece of their clothing, maybe some of their items. Maybe he fa found he forgot to 
put in in the uh, in the uh, bag, uh, the camouflage bag uh, with them. Um, you know, things like that, uh, just to destroy it, mess it all up, burn it, and then get rid of it. And so it could be that uh, he, he burned a few things, but uh, I'm sure he is a definitely going to be a souvenir guy, um, taking a ring, an earring, lipstick case, you know, something like that. Hopefully he's got w one or two of those that don't belong to his wife, and maybe they're in a, a, a secure place. But absolutely, what they got to do, like Bobby Chacon said, you know, maybe you could use ground penetrating radar. You don't find anything. Still, you got to dig it up. You got to you, you can't in a case like this where there's probably going to be more bodies attached to him. You, you got to turn over every leaf. You got to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Melanie, what is your take on how long they've been at this crime scene? What are they looking for? The fact that they've excavated the entire property. Well, they're looking for everything and every everything, anything and everything. There have been uh, neighbors interviewed who have said who have said that he has been known for digging a lot of holes in his backyard, which could indicate that he's been burying things. He also has been known to burn his garbage, which is at least what they thought that he was doing was burning his garbage. They ripped out the wooden deck in the back. They have been in there with their hazmat suits, pulling all kinds of stuff out of that what, storm cellar. Um, and they found a vault somewhere, I think it was in the cellar, for these 300 or so guns that he has. You know, I don't know that any of these were a murder weapon. I don't know that we have any indication that any of these victims were shot. Uh, it seems that he was more of a strangler. Um, and people are saying that perhaps he was a gun collector and he was, you know, collecting 300 guns for investment purposes. You know, I have questions about this guy had permits for 95 of them. Like, when does somebody at the permit department say... All right, that's that's enough. Like ninety-five permits is enough. Like, how many are you allowed to have? He's not a he's not law enforcement. Well, Melanie, it's just one permit, and they list all your guns on. The oh, one okay, all right, but so, but still, it doesn't right. raise any like red flags when yeah, you like, get up to ninety-five, and you're just a guy who claims to be a duck hunter. I mean, hey, there's lots I of ducks out there, works, Long I'm Island asking. ducks, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. That's why they call that's them Long Island that's ducks. Why, that's why they call them the Long Island ducks, right. exactly. No, I'm not making light of that, but really the guns have nothing to do with these crimes as far as we know right now. And again, uh, Rex Uerman is the alleged Gilgo uh, Long Island serial killer. He's innocent until proven guilty. But we're looking at the evidence. Now, the evidence that they've taken out of here, and, and there's been a voluminous amount of evidence in brown paper bags, which usually mean to you and I, Mike, that is possibly forensic evidence yeah. and they want to protect the evidence. And that's why it's being stored in brown paper bags and not plastic bags, because if it is evidence that needs to be laboratory tested, if it's biological evidence, the only way to preserve it is to keep it in paper. If you put it in plastic, it'll uh, erode the evidence and it'll be useless. So that leads us to believe that potentially some of the evidence that they've taken out there, could be biological in nature. Is that a possibility? You think, Mike? Yeah, Billy. They, uh, there's look. They're looking for anything and everything, as Melanie said. And if there's anything that looks like it could possibly have body fluids on it, um, they're gonna tag it and they're gonna bring it to the Emmy's office and look it over and send it out. If there's any sort of uh, fluid, maybe do see if they can do a DNA test if it's not too degraded. Um, but it doesn't mean that. It's, it can't be something from 
uh, one of the kids living, the kid living there, or maybe uh, Herman himself or, or his wife, you know, that sort of thing. So even though they may take a whole lot of paper bags, not every single bag is going to contain something that maybe uh, is contains DNA and it, and it, it may not even contain uh, someone else's DNA outside of the home. So you, you hope that they will find the DNA, but there's going to be an awful lot of things that they will look at, they'll analyze, and they might not actually be able to use. But uh, you keep your fingers crossed that out of all those bags and everything they got, um, that you're going to find something useful, uh, you know, in that home. You know, the other thing I just want to point out, not just to you guys, but to our audience, is that the large amount of evidence that they've taken out of this location, hopefully there's someone that's in charge of, of what they're taking out of there and the processing, because evidence just doesn't all go to a centralized location and sit on a shelf. Some evidence has to immediately go to a laboratory to be tested. And that has to be tracked. All of this stuff, it may sound simple, has to be tracked. And then there's evidence that may not need to be laboratory tested. Now, say you came up with a handbag or items of clothing or jewelry. Don't you want the public to see that? And the answer in a case like this is yes, because the public could potentially identify a piece of jewelry and say, that belongs to my sister who's missing now, you know, and that will help this investigation along. So the evidence is definitely a, a multi, uh, multi-task thing in regards to this and evidence that could potentially, uh, biological evidence could potentially link to Rex Uerman and to another victim. But in addition, we could have victims that we don't know are victims yet that are missing persons and that he could have their property. Melanie. Sure. I mean, none of these victims were found with any of their personal effects. They were not found with their purses. They were not found with their phones. So, you know, could he be collecting IDs? Could he be have, you know, could he have the purses? Could he have the shoes? You know, there was another serial killer in Atlantic City who still hasn't been caught, who also killed four people. And they were all found barefoot without their shoes. If this guy's got a lot of shoes in his house, maybe they need to look at him for Atlantic City, too. Um I am guessing that he does have personal effects. And if they find personal effects of other people too, he could also be connected to those cases as well. Somebody put in the chat here that obviously Melanie knows nothing about gun culture must be from a city. No, I am from right here on Long Island and I don't know anybody who has 300 guns. So you're absolutely right. I don't know anything about gun culture. I just, I think 300 guns is a lot. I guess maybe not for some people, but. No, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Look, I used to even, uh, I, 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 admittedly i'm not a gun person i own four guns my two original 38s my nine millimeter glock and my baby glock that i bought when i retired uh so i'm not a huge gun person but i've seen a lot of cops that have had tons of guns you know 50 guns 60 guns i never knew anyone that had 94 and 300 overall but you know if you believe in the second amend, uh, second amendment and you have the right to keep and bear arms that then he, except for the ones that weren't registered, he had 94 of them were uh, were registered legally. Now, what would that mean? That would would that raise a flag that someone owned the 94 guns? It's not supposed to. It's if it's if there's 94 registered, you're not supposed to get a knock on your door by the police and say we'd like to inspect your guns. That's the whole purpose of the Second Amendment, Mike. Yeah, no. 
And if they were antique or collectibles, do you have to register them? I don't know the answer to that question. So, yeah, ninety-four. Yeah, ninety-four that are legal. They're legal. Um, if the near, if he does, if he collects guns according to the laws of New York State, which are really strict, New York, Illinois, you know, probably uh, California have some of the strictest gun laws in the country. And so, if, if they are legally owned. Uh, then there's nothing you can say about that. It does, might seem odd that there's 300, but somewhere along the line is about 150 to 200 guns between 94 and almost 300 that he bought, never registered. And um, probably I would imagine it's just an offshoot from this case. Maybe the ATF, uh, call tobacco and firearms. And now they do explosives too. the ATFE. They might be looking to find out, you know, where were they purchased from? And did the people who he bought them from follow their own state's laws? If you bought them out of state or if you bought them in state. So that might be a little ancillary uh, investigation. But, um, yeah, it doesn't raise a red flag in this case because, um, uh, you know, un just the ownership of the guns. But, yeah, looking back, this is this is absolutely amazing number of guns. Um, I say fortunately um, for um you know, everyone involved uh, in, in terms of licensing guns in New York State, um, none of these uh, victims uh, appear so far, as we know, to have been the victim of a homicide with a firearm that he may have used. But, uh, yeah, it is it is strange. Country now pulling out their cold case files to see if accused Gilgo Beach killer Rex Hurman might be connected to their unsolved murders. The investigation here also pushes forward because there are at least six unsolved killings on Long Island in a case that was cold for more than a decade. It is now quite hot. Long Island reporter Shante Lands is live in Massapequa Park with the latest. Shante. All these investigators have been on scene here for a week now. The target is this burgundy house that belongs to accused Gilgo Beach serial killer. Rex Hewerman. More evidence is pulled from the Long Island property of alleged Gilgo Beach serial killer, Rex Hewerman. This is just the beginning. These are allegations. We need to prove these in court. It's been one week since the arrest of the Midtown Manhattan architect, husband and father of two, flipping his quiet Massapequa Park neighborhood upside down. It's crazy. It's really scary. I'm just shell-shocked, to be honest with you. Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone has dealt with the Gilgo Beach investigation, which launched in 2010 for his entire tenure. The fact that he's, uh, this individual's in custody, I know, is providing uh, a lot of uh, uh, sense of relief for the public. The search for more possible victims is now going beyond the 10 bodies found along Gilgo Beach, expanding to a fourth state. We have to. Uh, shame on us if we don't uh, look into Las Vegas, uh, South Carolina, uh, even, uh, even Atlantic City. Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison says investigators are now checking to see whether Hewerman had ties to Atlantic City, New Jersey, and a string of unsolved killings of women who worked as prostitutes. This, as Suffolk County Sheriff's deputies are also interviewing incarcerated sex workers about their interactions with Hewerman. He had reached out to them uh, to, for sex. Uh, fortunately for these two women, they uh, took the calls but did not uh, meet with him. Hewerman has been charged with murder and the deaths of three young women who worked as escorts. His wife of more than 25 years filing for divorce, seen here in this FoxNews.com photo. The docket says it will be uncontested. He was a strange guy. 
His wife was a strange person. The kids were, uh, one kid, Chris, was, uh, he's, he's got issues, but he's a sweet kid. I'm back out live here looking at authorities who you just heard from. That was Rex Huruman's neighbor. He's lived next door to Rex Huruman for 30 years. Meanwhile, investigators say they will be out here for at least several days. Rex Huruman pleaded not guilty to those murders. So I know, Melanie, that uh, you're probably salivating right now over what we've go going to go, where we're going to go with this right now. And where we're going to go right now is, of course, the elephant in the room. They always call it that. I don't know where that expression came from. I guess an elephant in the room should be pretty evident. So, therefore, so is the fact that in September 2010, uh, Amber Costello, she met with Rex Uerman, and it she met with him twice. One time he came to her house, and they had devised a guise, a ruse, if you would, to basically take his money and chase him away at the same time. Uh, so here's this big six foot four, six foot six, 250, 280, 300, whatever he weighs, he's a gigantic ogre of a man. And at that time, they, the ruse worked. They had his money and he didn't get what he paid for. Now he calls back and said, oh, that was basically a dirty trick, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and he makes a date for the next night. And he comes in his Chevy Avalanche, picks up Amber Costello, and it was the last time she was ever seen alive again. Now, the witness, a, a guy named David Schaller, uh, he was either her boyfriend or he was a sex worker himself. Uh, he meets with homicide investigators, and he said he gives him a tip on the Chevy Avalanche, and he says that he came face to face with Rex Uerman. Uh, and he was re interviewed in 2022. Now, I don't, we, we don't have access to the case folder. I don't know if the detectives in 2010 either face to face met with Mr. Schaller, interviewed him, or he called them up, whatever it was. Apparently, this was in the case folder. If this was in the case folder and it purported to be this six foot six inch man, 280 pounds, a, uh, a Chevy Avalanche, I believe at that time it, would, it was a, um, what year was it? 2002, I believe it was the car. It was a first generation green yes. Chevy Avalanche, 2002. And this is what allegedly was reported to the police. And again, I don't have access to the case folder. I can't ex exactly say. However, what we can say, if this is all true and there was no follow-up to this, then that is a huge, huge screw-up. And not just on the part of the investigators, but on a part of the supervision. The bosses who are running this case and who are overseeing this case, because here was this huge lead, this huge bit of information that apparently wasn't followed up. And again, and I, one of the things I want to say, though, is in, back in 2010, I don't think they had the burner phone information that could do the cell site information that had the Massapequa Park and the, uh, the New York City information. And uh, they obviously did not have the DNA information that connected Rex Huerman to the case and his wife's DNA to the case. 
So those are things that we have now because everything becomes crystal clear when the picture is is what it is. So I'm just offering that up. Melanie, I know you're, re you're ready. You're like a bull charging out of the bullpen. Go ahead. Yeah, the chat's a little salty tonight, though, so I'm afraid to, like, say what I want to say. I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. I say Melanie is the free country. <laughs> Amber Costello goes missing on September 2nd of 2010. The last person to see her alive is this witness, Dave, okay? Her body is then found three months later. Dave, when he's interviewed, gives the police a physical description of Herman, who is not a regular looking guy. He's six foot six. He's a, looks like an ogre. He has bushy dark hair. He has 70 style glasses and he drives a green Chevy avalanche. They had all of this information. I am not law enforcement. I've not been trained in law enforcement, but I've heard you guys talk a lot. And it seems to me to be police investigation 101 to interview the last person who saw who's now a dead girl alive. And that physical description, if you listen to what, um, you know, the current police commissioner is saying or the DA now is saying it was buried in a sea of tips, buried in a sea of tips. Um, it's worth pointing out that the person who was the police commissioner of Suffolk County at the time went to jail for five years. And also the DA went to jail and is still in prison. He was convicted in 19 uh, at 79 years old and he's still in prison for, you know, some other things that were sketch that had to do with also um, the, you know, police commissioner got a bag of stuff stolen out of his police vehicle that had some very incriminating things in it, pornography, sex toys, and then he beat the crap out of the guy who was in handcuffs in an interrogation room because he called him a pervert and then tried to cover it up and tried to get nobody to uh, to talk about it. So the fact that they're saying that this got lost in a sea of tips is a little um, misleading and disingenuous because they had this information back then. And let me tell you something. If they find out that this guy kept killing and there's, you know, however many more bodies since 2010, that's on them. And I know they don't like to roll over on each other. And it's the old boys club out there in Suffolk County. And I know because I've practiced law in Suffolk County my entire career. And Nassau County, it's the old boys club. Nobody wants to, you know, rat anybody out. But that's exactly why James Burke, who was the police commissioner at the time, went to prison. Because he said, anybody who tells on me is a rat and I'll blacklist you and everything else. So there was so much going on in Suffolk County at the time. Uh you know, with corruption in the department and in the DA's office that, you know, just was overlooked. But they I had the information. I'm going to get back, right back to that. Joe Laverick, thank you for the $5 super sticker. I think the wife was probably relieved that he was taken into custody. I suspect she must have been looking for a way out for some time. Well, I don't know about that, but we'll 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 explore that. Alula Morocco, thank you so much for the $20 super sticker. Why is the FBI's emergency response team unit not in massive Piqua on the scene? At least assisting in this case is Commissioner Harrison blocking their office. What is happening here? Lou, I guarantee you that uh, Commissioner Harrison is taking all the help and doing this by the numbers. Uh, he's the one to put together this uh, task force. And uh, and how do you how do you know the ERT is not there? All the folks that are processing this crime scene are in white Tyvek suits. There very well could be the uh, FBI's emergency response team, maybe because their um, emergency response vehicles are there. They don't need it there. They have the the evidence is going to go to the Suffolk County labs. 
and to the Suffolk County Police. But thank you, Lou. And I, I guarantee uh, Commissioner Harrison would not turn down any help, especially from the FBI after he had put together this task force. So, folks, I, I, I didn't – with this case, of course, we knew about Burke. We knew about the, the, the district attorney, Spoda. And for years, this case did limp along. And there was a lot of uh, politics involved that, first of all, why would you not bring the FBI on board in this case, uh, specifically for the manpower and also for their money? The FBI has all kinds of resources in the way of money and toys and investigative tools that local police do not have. So why not bring them on board? Now, this looks like a diagram for how to run a big investigation, a how-to, because they got the Suffolk County Police. They got the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. They got the state police. They got the FBI. And and they have the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. So five separate entities. And peripherally, Nassau County is involved too. Whenever it crosses over into Nassau, you got Nassau County always willing and ready and able to lend a hand with this. And it is sort of sad that, and if it is the case, Melanie, and I agree with you, that we find out that had he been taken off the street, well, I think we're going to find that out. You know, and this happens all the time in law enforcement because you really can't, look, this was a, a huge lead. But however, even when the task force was put together and went over the case folder, I think six weeks later, they uncovered this lead. So the, the amount, the voluminous amount of information uh, is all, and I'm not making any excuses. Look, if it was a screw up, it was a screw up. And are people dead because of it? I don't know yet. And we're going to find that out. Mike. Yeah, Billy, I was thinking as, you know, uh, Melanie was talking about the case and, and it was, it was definitely a screw up. Um, what I'm thinking about is chronologically, you know, how is the Amber Costello case presented to the police? Uh, it was probably presented to her, uh, to the police as a missing persons report by uh, Mr. Schaller. And he may have given that information. I'm not sure. Again, I, I haven't seen the, the case folder either. So it might have been a missing persons case. And it may be, in fact, that uh, the detective involved realized that uh, Ms. Costello was a sex trap or sex worker and may not have really did a lot of back follow-up because, um, you know, he may have figured she would come and go. She's probably, you know, um, traveling around and, and making money and she's probably not always in touch with this guy. And so he probably slow walked it. Um, unfortunately, it appears that when her body was found about three and a half months later, um, there was, there might not have been a, a second interview of Mr. Shala. He claims there was, not sure because it's been, you know, it's uh, it's been uh, 12 years, 13 years now, but it was a screw up. And um, I think perhaps maybe because she was a, uh, a, a a prostitute, they may have slow walked it and not cared. And then when it, they find her body, they don't make the connection or maybe they don't re-interview him or they re-interviewed him later and he gives the information. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's way too late by that point. Thankfully, within a couple of just a couple of weeks of the uh, task force being put together again, that sharp-eyed state trooper saw that um, 
uh, that file and put two and two together and said, wait a second, time out. I think I, I, we got a, a solid lead here. Uh, you know, so there was a screw up. How far up the chain of command goes, we don't know. But definitely supervision should have, should have been on that case, especially in 2010 when you get Amber Costello's body uh, found. Uh, and then along with the other, uh, other three, that should have gone over everything right then and there. But it was a screw up and supervision, better supervision would have really saved a lot of time and effort in people's lives. You know, I've watched a lot of the, uh, the news uh, stations are sort of dwelling on this mistake and as they always do, you know, because uh, after all, broadcast news stations never make any mistakes, but they're all jumping in on this. And do you know that had they, you know, so woulda, coulda, shoulda. But look, we're reporting it. It was. It appears that it was a screw up. But you, when they interview Rodney Harrison, uh, he doesn't really want to talk about it. He's like, I don't want to blame anyone that came before me for anything that wasn't done or happened in this case that uh, may have been a mistake or, or wasn't acted upon. He wants to talk about what the Gilgo Beach Task Force did. And he's a classy guy, a classy police commissioner. Anyway, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. This is real crime from a police perspective. And that is the perspective we give it to you. Some people are shocked that we come out the way we do. But we tell you right from the beginning, this is real crime, true crime from a police perspective. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel memberships, our YouTube family with five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font, they're part of our YouTube channel family, our subscribers, our fans, our friends. And, uh, we appreciate them probably more than they appreciate us, but uh, we're glad to have them on board. You know, one of the things that I, I and Melanie, feel free. I'm not trying to hide that that happened. I'm really not. And how big, like we can't tell how big of a screw up unless we can actually see the case folder and said, look, they sat on this or they just didn't see the importance of this. For over 10 years. And then the importance of the they, last guy who saw this dead girl alive. She left her cell phone was, at home. They had her phone. They had a description of the guy. They had a description of his car. I submit to you how many guys who are six foot six in the surrounding counties, because he wasn't from far away. She was in West Babylon. He was in Massapequa. That's like a stone's throw. How many guys who are six foot six in that area with that description have a Chevy Avalanche green registered in their name? Look, I'm not. I'm not I'm defending that. I said it I'm was a screw saying. up, but it, it's not as obvious as you're making it out to be because they were getting at the time probably hundreds and hundreds of tips pouring in over a tip line, and I don't know how this was report. Was this reported face to face? Was this reported over a tip line? Let's face it. The guy who reported it, I'm sure he's not an altar boy, and he may have been involved in in the, the sex trade business himself. So, I mean, he's right now. He's like. You know, he's probably talking to 22 attorneys and he's he's coming up with exact, you know, information where he probably didn't have exact information in 20 in, excuse me, it was uh, in 2010. So and, and, and Melody, they also did not have the technology 
with these burner phones to track them like they have now. They have that all now, so it becomes very clear. We also have the DNA, so it becomes very clear. They didn't have that in 2010. So all of this stuff that's crystal clear now was not crystal clear in 2010. I'm just talking about a physical description and a DMV check. That's all I'm talking about. I, we've been doing DMV checks since the early 90s. If we had to run a plate, if somebody was in a car accident, we run the plate. We find out who the owner is. You know, we run some no, no, driver's license. They, so we get they, their physical could, description. It wasn't, wasn't well, rocket science. Use, they could use something called the lawman search. I don't know how many, uh, even if they had to do a statewide search, how many Chevy avalanches uh, they had the color black are registered on Long Island. I don't know. I, and probably they could have narrowed it down doing that. I don't know what they did. I can't yeah. speak or criticize them any further than that. I don't know what investigative checks they did after receiving this information. Mike. Bill, you know, I, 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 I've listened to everything Melanie says and everything you're saying. And, you know, we always, hindsight's always 2020, but um, yeah, Suffolk County was uh, law enforcement and district attorney's office was in disarray. Absolutely. Uh, when this, when in this time frame, 2009, 2010, it was terrible. Um, if, the finding of four bodies right next to right fairly close within within I think all four were found um, within a couple hundred feet of each other. I, I would think you'd call in the FBI really quickly, and I think you, if you call them in, they might have had uh, the ability to help out and give some suggestions to maybe something of a disorganized police department. Um, but they didn't. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure that, you know, deciding that you're just going to handle four dead bodies in a row in, on a beach. Uh, you, say, you know, you have a serial killer. Um, how you wouldn't call in the FBI or at least the state police to help you. I'm not sure when that was done, if it was done, you know, under what circumstance it was done. But, yeah, it was uh, it was a failure of leadership. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just said I yeah. said that earlier yeah. on because yeah. it's not just the investigators that get the information. It's the bosses that read the case folder and have to say, there's no follow-up on this. Right. What, what, what did you do on this? Who took this and who interviewed this guy? There's no DD5s. There's no complaint follow-ups on this. Melanie, why don't you answer this? That, Roger Still, thanks for the $5 super sticker. On the August 1st hearing, does the DA have to show more evidence? No, I don't even know what the hearing is for. He's already been indicted. I don't, is this a scheduling conference? What is the hearing that we're, go, we're going in for? I mean, he's already been arraigned. What is the conference on August 1st? Well, I, I, when possibly... I looked in the court computer, I couldn't, I didn't see, you know, it wasn't titled at all. It just a conference. Well, Melanie, hmm. could, it, could it possibly be a bail application hearing, which was already, which was, was already, already answered in this 32 page document? But that, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a, a court appearance for it, correct? Well, I'm going to be in the courtroom, so I will report back to you exactly what it happens. Okay, well, that's good. So, that's I mean, they've already know. remanded him without bail. They've already denied the bail application. So, you know, this could be a scheduling concept, uh, you know, conference. I don't know if anybody a knows. Scheduling conference for the next date that they'll put forth toward. Yeah. Well, I mean, this seems like even more a case that would be put off even longer than Koberger. We're talking about the, the Idaho quadruple murders. Uh, right. This could be put, put off even longer than that. 
they may come up with more charges. They may indict him on Maureen Brainerd Barnes. They're working on that. Absolutely. I think that could be that could be part of it. Yeah. You know, guys, I, I wanted to uh, also bring up the fact that I've been reading up on the CODIS system and um, and I found out a lot of things that I was unaware of. Uh, and I, I knew all along that there's two types of DNA in the CODIS system, which stands for folks listening combined DNA index system. But there's three parts of that system. It's the local, state, and the federal part. And then there's two parts, two different types of DNA. And the DNA is offender DNA, which is taken off convicted offenders. And then there is uh, forensic DNA. That is DNA that's submitted from crime scenes. And guess what I found out was pretty disturbing. Not all of the DNA that's submitted from crime scenes is actually processed because it costs too much money. Mm. And the same way that rape kits that don't have an identified perpetrator sit on a shelf. Yeah. And we had a case in Memphis with Eliza Fletcher where she would still be alive today, but a rape kit sat on a shelf for four or five months, was never submitted, and the savage that killed her would have been in jail or in prison had that rape kit been submitted so it's the same with this dna with the forensic part of the dna system so potentially there could be some missing persons some recovered bodies crime scenes that were are connected to rex Uerman. and i'm not look this is a hypothetical that haven't been tested so that is the state of codis so that is one of the reasons that the fbi recommends local dna like local areas submit their own DNA to labs that are associated with, you know, the CODIS system. So it was pretty eye-opening to me about these things because when you have a situation like this with a serial killer, we want to know each and every person that he potentially came in contact with. And now some people can't speak to us because they're dead. You know, some people are part of crime scenes. So that's what will speak to us is their DNA and the DNA potentially from Rex Uerman, Uerman that's never been tested from some of these. And again, potential crime scenes that have never been submitted. Mike. Yeah, Bill, you know, I remember uh, back on patrol in, in, the, in the Bronx in the 4-6 and there'd be rape kits sitting on top of the evidence locker. You'd get the rape kit from the hospital. You bring it back to the precinct. It wouldn't be refrigerated. You know, you'd voucher it. And you'd invoice it, and you'd leave it on top of the evidence locker, and weeks later, it'd still be there. Nobody would have taken it to the to the uh, to the uh, office and um, to be examined. And so, you know, I guess the ME's office would be doing the examination, and uh, it was pretty sad. And then to hear now what you just said, which is kind of eye-opening, but I, I think like where in Westchester, where I'm where I'm presently living, um, there's like 44 police departments, and they're all small. Most of them are pretty small um, and they might not have the actual uh, you know, money to actually take this sort of information and upload it because it's probably going to cost ten dollars to $20,000 a pop. And so you don't realize that because you know, think, oh, they're just going to get it. It's going to go into the system and boom, it's going to be there. And there's going to be probably a couple of weeks before we get a hit. But um, yeah, I think a lot of the smaller departments that aren't well-funded they, they cut corners and uh, 
and maybe some of the larger partners like the NYPD, they, they, they cut corners or weren't just really weren't paying attention. And that's sad because you're right. There's going to be uh, connections missed with uh, potential hits on uh, co- um, uh, humans DNA. You know, look, one of the things that I learned a lot about um, through, um, you know, working for an organization like the NYPD was that we had a tremendous amount of oversight in everything we did. I was a sergeant in Manhattan North Homicide Squad. My team would be, everything we did would be looked at by our lieutenant. Then it would go to the captain and then the deputy inspector at the borough level. And then it would go down to the chief of detectives. So many people were pouring through these case folders. And if anything was missed, it would be pointed out. And rarely was anything missed, but potentially there could be something missed. But they didn't have that checks and balance system to check that something as glaring as this was was not followed up on. And this is and look, I know people think that I'm defending. I'm just telling you these things can happen. And in any whatever business you're in. Doctors screw up, nurses screw up, teachers screw up, engineers screw up, politicians are screw ups, right? So it's like, don't act like this is unique to law enforcement. It's certainly not. Lawyers screw up, of course. Doctors screw up. Everybody screws up. I think think the problem here is that Burke didn't call in the FBI because he didn't want the FBI looking into him and finding out what he was doing. And he was the, the top chief, you know? And and he was the top dog and his buddy was the D.A. So, look, they colluded. They both went to prison for it. And that's just the facts. I mean, that is the facts. So, um, look, the backlog on rape kits is a whole other issue for a whole other show. And that's horrifying. Um, but do we even know if Herman even had sex with any of these women or was this just a that was the way that he got them, you know, to good point, you know, as as a as a way to get them? And then he just murdered them. Like, I don't even know if there's been any evidence that he had sex with any of these women. And that well, p- people were asking that in the chat. So I'm just wondering if anybody has any uh, further insight on no, that. No, right? there is no forensic evidence as to, right. to, yeah. as to that. No, there isn't. Just the fact that he was calling up sex workers. And, you right. know, no, there's no evidence recovered that can prove that he had sex with them. No, there is right. not. And it was, you know, the nature of look at how long it took to find uh, to find these bodies. And they were out there. And, you know, forensic evidence. Well, it was amazing that hairs were recovered. Yeah, that that, that is 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 unbelievable. So, no, that uh, that definitely isn't, uh, you know. Isn't part of the evidence they have in this case. Let me play a little bit of this, guys. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. It took nearly 13 years Rex, did you do it? to track down the accused Gilgo Beach serial killer. We executed over 300 subpoenas, search warrants. The amount of evidence that we're getting is massive. A married father of two living in the house he grew up in. You never know who's living on your block. Now he's tied to multiple murders. They're human beings. And I know Amber was so much more, and I miss her terribly. This is a PIX11 news special. Hunt, the Gilgo Beach serial killer. 
I'm Mary Murphy on Gilgo Beach, where a serial killer investigation was launched more than a dozen years ago. Four dead women who came to be known as the Gilgo Four were discovered here in the brush off Ocean Parkway in December 2010. Now police say they finally found the murderer. He was living a double life. He had a wife, he had two kids, nice uh, job as, a, as an architect. And Rex Hewerman, 59, probably never expected to be surrounded by cops in Midtown as he left work on a Thursday evening. Rex, did you do it? Still wearing the same khakis, the towering suspect was accused of being the Gilgo Beach, Long Island serial killer known as Lisk, who eluded law enforcement for more than a dozen years. But you were aware that he was patronizing other sex it, workers? It certainly appeared as though he was, yes. While investigators in white Tyvek suits immediately descended on Hewerman's lifelong home in Massapequa Park, armed with search warrants, the suspect was initially charged with murdering three of the Gilgo Four, Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, and Amber Costello, all petite online escorts who were discovered dead in 2010 with another escort, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, in the brush off Ocean Parkway. The only thing I can tell you that he did say uh, as he was in tears was, I didn't do this. Three of the sex workers were bound in burlap, and Hewerman was named the prime suspect in the murder of the fourth, Brainerd Barnes. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz consulted on the case of serial killer Joel Rifkin, another Long Island resident, and spoke to us about Hewerman's arrest. The most common sexual motive for serial killings is sexual sadism. Becoming the god to that victim is the offender's uh, primal goal. The architect's neighbors on First Avenue in Massapequa Park were stunned that the hulking Hewerman hid the alleged crimes for so long. A map showing Wontaw Parkway near his home reveals how easily he could have driven to Ocean Parkway, close to the Jones Beach Exchange. He grew up there as, from, as a kid with his parents. Many thought that Hewerman's house was an eyesore. Detectives said they found hundreds of guns locked in a vault in the house, and fairly soon they were searching storage facilities nearby. Are there body parts or things that we need to take a look at? Are there trophies of some of the victims that, uh, unfortunately, that he stored in that location? The crucial break in the case had come last year from a new interview with Amber Costello's roommate and pimp, who said a John had come to their house in Babylon on September 1st, 2010, the day before she vanished, and the client, described as ogre-like, was driving a green Chevy Avalanche. Six weeks later, on March 14th, 2022, the name Rex Hurman was first mentioned as a suspect in the Gilgo case. Not only did he own the Chevy Am Avalanche, but he, he matched the physical description. During a Google search of old maps, investigators discovered a green Chevy Avalanche parked outside Uriman's house in plain sight. And now a former escort is coming forward to say she talked about true crime investigations with Rex Uriman during a date. Long Island stylist Nicole Brass appeared on Cuomo. And I said, well, have you heard of the Gilgo Beach murders? Like his body language kind of changed and like his eyes were like, as if he was in a different place, like he was picturing it all over again. It was weird. He almost kind of made the victims like seem like people who didn't matter. Hewerman's wife has now filed divorce papers, which were not contested. The wife's sister, Johanna, spoke briefly to Pix11 News from her Long Island home. 
we don't know anything. We're hearing about most of it on the news ourselves. So we, we're just going to refrain from saying anything. And there are more revelations about the people Rex Heuerman did work for, aside from con. Interesting. But, you know, it's um, I everything becomes evident now. And, you know, in his neighborhood, of course, his house was recognized as uh, as an eyesore among, you know, middle class homes that were nice. He was. Uh, identified as a, a bit strange, but were people saying that the day before he was arrested, or is, are they all saying it now because it's fitting this what we know, the truths that we know about this guy right now? Um, of course, the, there is no way to de to defend what happened in with with the, the lead in this case and not being followed up. There's no way to defend that. I'm not trying to defend it, but I'm just saying. It wasn't as obvious as it is right now when we know all of this information. We have the DNA information. We have the burner phone cell sites. Uh, we have the green avalanche. Again, and Melanie, you, you, you mentioned that they could have searched the uh, New York DMV. I mean, it's not as simple as that either. There's a lawman search where you can search certain areas for all the owners of a certain vehicle. I don't believe they had a license plate number. Uh, but they did have the description of this six foot six inch man, and a, a uh, was it a green or a green, uh, green avalanche, a Chevy avalanche? So, no, that, that that's a good lead, of course, to work with, and and it seems like they dropped the ball. Yeah. <laughs> It seems that way. I mean, you know, like, you know, like you could do a DMV search for every guy who's six foot six and then cross check it with all the green avalanches in the area and see if any of the names match. That's what I would do. Right. And that's just as, you know, somebody looking at a civil case trying to connect, like, let's say a hit and run driver. You know, I have a description of the car description of that. I mean, that's just seems to me to be basic. But again, if it was buried in the file, um, because Burke didn't want anybody looking into him and he didn't call in any other, you know, FBI or any other organizations. And the DA was, you know, covering for Burke. It, it's a whole uh, all kinds of layers of problems with this case. Hopefully he didn't kill anybody else after that. Um, I think we're going to find differently. I, I think there's a very good chance they're, uh, they're going they're definitely going to find more bodies on this guy. And that's why I, I was talking about. Uh, the connections of the DNA from a uh, a local, uh, a state, and a national level, and especially the forensic DNA that comes again. We explained earlier on in CODIS combined DNA DNA index system that's run by the FBI. There's two types of DNA: one being offender DNA, DNA taken from everyone who's convicted of a crime, and then forensic DNA, which is taken from crime scenes. And that's one of the areas that the weakness exists within our country and within our state that they don't process these crime scenes that now we have a serial killer to compare them against. Mike. Yeah, Billy, you know, there's times when, you know, things fall through the cracks and nobody's hurt. There's times when departments can uh, that are tight on a tight budget, operating a tight budget, and they, they want to... Uh, you know, don't submit something because it's going to cost too much money or, or that sort of thing and then get away with it. But in this case, um, this is the classic example of, you know, you shouldn't try to get away with it. You sh it's uh, 
you should submit that. And unfortunately, they didn't. And if they had, it, you know, it'd be things would be a lot different. But um, you know, you you cut corners, and you get away with it. But this we now see all the mistakes in hindsight, and they they do appear more glaring because you could see every step in the before you didn't know where the steps would lead you, but now you realize where the step where the steps took you, and they took you to a guy who's now accused of three and possibly four very soon and maybe you know uh, a lot more than that and and that's the tragedy of it and as melanie said if it's possible that they, we can find a person connected to uh, a human uh, who committed a homicide if he committed that homicide on that person you know in 2013 2014 2015 2016 2017 you know then the, the magnitude of the, of the mistake really comes into focus at that point, and that's the shame of it. You know, District Attorney Tierney said that in 2012, uh, detectives connected victims to the burner, uh, burner phones. However, it wasn't until years later that they connected the region of Massapequa Park to those same burner phones. The proper investigative thing also, and Melanie mentioned it, you had the information about the six foot six inch person, a mm -hmm. green avalanche through the DMV, try to find out all of the owners in this. Well, the, the area of Amber Costello's home was West Babylon. So we'd have to get an area. We couldn't just guess, oh, it's Massapequa Park. We know that now. We didn't right. know that then. So let's run all of Suffolk County. Well, let's run all of Long Island. And now I don't know how many hits you're going to get but if this witness, David Shala, can identify, all right, then let's let's figure out, let's narrow it down, and let's show him some photo arrays, which are, are, are photo lineups, folks, for, uh, is uh, what the police use to, to get an identification. You never show a one-on-one -on -one photo. They would show a photo lineup. And could he have picked him out? I don't know. I don't know. That would have been the one of the, if they could have, identified them through these means through the DMV. I don't I don't believe they had a plate number and they didn't at that point according to ADA Tierney, they they knew about the burner phones. However, they did not have the locations that the burner phones were being used which would have given us massive people park. So a lot of this thing these things the investigative leads didn't come to fruition till years years later. And again, I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just understanding what could have happened because yes was this a huge screw up yes it was let's just talk about the fact that the green chevy avalanche is still in the guy's possession okay all these years later that he used to maybe if he's guilty because you know innocent until proven guilty to move these uh, bodies around um and he gave it to his brother who now lives in uh, chester south carolina and now he's got another black chevy avalanche which is well you know it's like a pickup truck that has a cover on the back of it you know, it's got it's a four seat car. So if you were going to put a body in there, it would be a good place to do it. If you look at the out the the layout of this guy's house, he could back that truck right up to the garage, you know, open the garage, pull somebody out of the back of it. His his wife and family were out of town every time one of these girls went missing. He could have dragged them through the house, out the back door and into that storm cellar because there there's no entrance to that cellar. If it's a typical storm cellar, like I'm thinking through the house you have to go outside to get into that storm cellar so who knows what they're finding down there and what they're gonna you know what they're gonna be able to connect them to next 
I mean, that car was specifically used for that purpose. I mean, it was, you know, people have pointed out like that's the exact kind of car that he would need to do this kind of thing, you know, and it's crazy that he still has it or that he gave it to his brother. And something else I found very interesting is that his brother, who um, is maybe two years younger than he is, is the same physical description as him. He's about six foot six. He's an ogre looking guy. He's, you know, the same size and physical description. They interviewed one of his neighbors in South Carolina. Rex apparently bought a whole bunch of property in Chester, South Carolina years ago that he and his wife were going to um, retire to or build a house on or something. So I imagine that they're scouring that property as well to see if that could have been some kind of a dumping ground. I mean, who knows? Well, and apparently his brother was involved in a DWI accident a couple of years ago where he killed somebody. Yeah, 1988. Uh, he killed a, a housing yeah. authority police chief. Yeah. And he went to jail for three years. So he was yeah. in and out of jail throughout the 90s as well, I think, for some other things too. Well, Melanie, I'm sure that if the possibility exists that his brother could be a co-conspirator with him, he's being looked at uh, in every way possible by the yeah. investigators. Someone else, It was also reported in the community that he's an angry guy. So, you know, I'm sure they're looking at all of those things. Um, let me play a little bit of this. This is the um, Suffolk County... Attorney Ray Tierney into court when the gruesome indictment was unsealed. One of them was the younger sister of victim Alyssa Bartholomew. The sister was just 15, according to family, when the accused killer made taunting phone calls in 2009 using Bartholomew's cell phone. Is this Melissa's little sister? That's how he started out the conversation. Is this Melissa's little sister? And she answered yes. Megan Waterman's daughter was just three when her mother disappeared. This surveillance shows Megan Waterman just 22 in the early hours of June 6, 2010, shortly before she left the Holiday Inn Express in Hog, Long Island to meet a client. Prosecutors say that John was architect Rex Hureman, based on calls from a burner phone he allegedly bought the day before Waterman met her demise. And for each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone and he used that to communicate with the victims. Amber Costello, 27, was the last of the Gilgo Four to disappear. Court papers indicate her roommate and pimp tried to act like an outraged boyfriend when the suspect allegedly showed up at their Babylon rental on September 1st, 2010, looking for sexual services. They wanted to rip them off. Hewerman allegedly texted Amber Costello saying, that was not so nice. Do I get credit for next time? Her roommate watched her leaving the house the next day, taking nothing with her. He was really worried because when she went out the door, she didn't take her purse or her cell phone. He was like, you're forgetting them. And she said, I'm not gonna need them. Amber Costello's body was discovered three months later with the Gilgo Four on Ocean Parkway. He's huge. He's, none of these girls stood a chance against him. The Long Island serial killer investigation involved painstaking phone analysis, the search for better DNA technology, and the hope that a tip would come in that would change everything. The Gilgo Beach Task Force tracked Rex Hewerman for more than a year with physical and digital surveillance. A 32-page court affidavit claimed 
prosecutors had images of Hewerman buying extra minutes on his burner phones, hoping they weren't traceable. But experts did eventually trace his burners, they say, and some victims' phones to cell sites near Ewerman's place of work in Midtown Manhattan and four cell towers in Massapequa Park that were close to his home. And that was So again, uh, they didn't have this information back when this went down, this, this cell phone burner information. They had the burner information. They didn't have the cell site information that gave them really two specific locations, Massapequa Park and Manhattan near Fifth Avenue, which turned out to be the location of his office. Uh, then there was other, call, call, of course, pings in certain places when he was trying to reach out to other sex workers when he specifically used his, uh, his burner phones. In addition, he took the cell phones of uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes and Melissa Bartellome, and those are the phones that he used to taunt the family members with their phones. So for a psychosexual sadistic killer, those cell phones had to be the trophy of all trophies and that he was getting off calling their family and actually in one instance describing to the sister what he had done to her, that she was dead and giving uh, all the information what he had. I mean, that's a sick, sick individual. So when we talk about trophies, uh, those are two of the, the biggest trophies that he kept. Melanie. Yeah. And he, you know, he made taunting phone calls to, uh, to her 15 year old sister. It's horrifying, you know, and was telling her all kinds of disgusting things that he did to her. And, you know, I, I where was the follow up on that? Why didn't they trace those phone calls? I don't know. It was, would there have been some follow up on that kind of thing? Billy, there um, was. There know, was, was follow-up on it. Of course there was follow-up on it. But they had the cell set. They didn't know who the guy was, though. <laughs> I mean, what, I, you know, you can't just expect them to pull the suspect out of thin air. Yeah, they did track those phones. But they, again, when they first used these phones, the technology wasn't as good as it is right now in 2023. It wasn't even close to it. I think that they said that he knew when to hang up, that they couldn't. Like, you have to be on the phone for a certain amount of time to trace a phone call like that. And he knew, like, exactly when to hang up. And so that's why there was some chatter that they thought he might be in law enforcement, that he knew that. You know, when we talk about organized and disorganized offenders, and he's definitely an organized offender that has traits of disorganization in him because he's organized in the fact that he's smart, he owns a vehicle. He owns a home. He's married. He's an architect. He owns a dual life. He travels. Uh, he's articulate. Uh, he can blend right in. But disorganized, here's this architect that his house looked like the, the shittiest house on the block, you know, and he was an architect. You know, he had other things that showed disorganization to it, to himself. However, the organized part was what he was when he was Rex. You were a men serial killer. Mike. Yeah, Billy, he was smart and stupid at the same time, like you point out. As, as bright as he was in terms of IQ, you know, um, and as violent and sadistic as he was, he, he, uh, he didn't understand the cell phone technology. Now, as, as Melanie and you were exchange, having an exchange before, I was thinking what would have happened 
you know, they got, uh, they could, they could trace from, uh, if there's a cell phone, you could, you could figure out what the, who the incoming, you can figure out the incoming call, but um, it wouldn't be identified as human because it was a burner phone, but the ability to triangulate locations uh, wasn't available at the time. Could they have made an arrest earlier in say 2010 or 2012? They may have had probable cause to arrest them, but they probably wouldn't have had nearly the ability to have a slam dunk case or a really convincing amount of evidence as they have now, because back then they didn't, they didn't have the hair. Um, uh, they had the hairs, but they didn't have uh, his wife's DNA. They didn't get that until the, the task force started and they uh, got the uh, bottles from the uh, trash and they realized, okay, who's the, the hair, hair belongs to his wife, you know, that sort of thing. But um, maybe it's better in some ways that he wasn't arrested earlier. You know, just looking at it from, from two different angles, maybe it would be, it's better that he wasn't arrested earlier and they had a, a weaker case, whereas now you have a much more solid case. The only thing you hope for is that between then and now, he hadn't killed anybody. Look, I hope that that's, that's, is the truth, but even with my, mitochondrial DNA, uh, that wasn't at the level uh, back in, you know, when these crimes happened as it is now. I don't think they could have identified three hairs from the wife 10 years ago. I don't think they could have with mitochondrial DNA. I think that the science has advanced so far. I don't think they could have identified his hair on one of those uh, burlap camouflage burlap bags, burlap, burlap bags, if if back in the day. Now, mitochondrial DNA, which is the maternal side of the DNA, uh, is it, it's advanced. It's advanced so far, and these things did not, again, did not uh, have the capability in 2010 to make these identifications. So, can we say sometimes things? Look, I'm not. I don't know. I'm, I, this is the last time I'm inviting Melanie on the show. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I nobody's going to shut me up. <laughs> but you know, let's well, talk about whether the wife knew. You know, people are chiming up in the chat. Don't you think the wife knew? Everyone? I think that. I don't know that there's any evidence of abuse or any, but I think the guy was definitely emotionally abusive. I think that he was, uh, he had her under some sort of weird control. I think that she just, she probably didn't even want him around. So, I mean, the, the fact that she filed for divorce within 30 seconds of him being arrested just says it all to me. Like she was glad he was finally locked up in a cage where he could never terrorize her again. I mean, that's my gut feeling that I'm, you know, that I'm getting from this. So, you know, people are saying what happened in their childhood that made them like that. Their father died when he was 11 and he was the oldest child and he became like the man of the house at 11 years old. Who knows, you know, what he went through in his childhood. Not that that's any excuse for becoming a serial killer if he's guilty because, you know, innocent until proven guilty and all. But I do not think that the wife was involved. I do not think that she even had any inkling that he was a serial killer, if he is a serial killer. But who knows what was going on inside that house? But I don't think it was good. 
you know, Melanie, I totally agree with you. I, we've been attacked when we say that we think the family, they, uh, probably they didn't know, but they knew he was up to no good in some way. He just disappeared in the middle of the night all the time. And you, I guess you, if you allow that, you're sort of an enabler and people will attack me for saying that. I don't care. They had to know this guy's behavior was not that of a normal human being. Oh, could they have picked it out that he's a serial killer? No, but he was up to something. What's this? Of course, downstairs he has that big locked safe because he owns 300 guns, you know. Uh, but he had some apparent behavior. There's no doubt. And for his family not to have noticed that, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Folks, I know what people in the chat saying, there was mitochondrial DNA 10 years ago. Yes, there was. But they didn't have the ability then to identify little hairs like they recovered in this case. Now they can do it. They can do it. They couldn't do it back in 2010. Yes, there was, again, DNA has advanced so far. Generations. You talk to Barbara Butcher. She uh, celebrates the World Trade Center the, from a technological standpoint that all the DNA work they did on that case in trying to identify people resulted in DNA technology advancing three generations. From that, from uh, 2001 to now is, is, is 22 years ago. It's advanced probably another three generations. So, yes, the science is unbelievable. And the same thing with cell phones, the tower searches, the equipment they have to do these searches, the cooperation they get from, you know, we don't own the phones. The government does not own the phones. So they need the cooperation from the carriers to get this information. And, folks, just so you know, say they're trying to search a phone that belongs to AT&T, AT &T, they do not do it for free. This costs thousands and thousands of dollars. They want a tower dump. How long do you want it for? Oh, the weekend. Okay, that'll be 10 grand. And if the government says, we're not paying, they say, well, we're not doing it. <laughs> so it's like none of this stuff is free as well as DNA. Testing DNA is not free either because the labs that test it, they may work for the government. There a lot of them are private labs. Mike. Yeah, Billy, it's all about, it's all about the economics. Um, people, uh, you know, if you're accustomed to watching, you know, stories on TV, they'll talk about it could be 48 hours. Some of the really good ones. Or if you're watching, say, Law and Order, um, they'll they won't talk about how much it costs. But the cost is always uh, a significant. And it's always a factor. And uh, you're looking to save money. I remember years ago when, um, back when I was in the legal bureau and they'd be drawing up a uh, request for information from a cell, you know, cell phone dumps. This is early on. We're talking right around the time of the World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, they were always getting they were always giving the NYPD problems because, you know, Verizon and everybody's saying, well, we don't have the time to do this. We don't have the time to do it on the schedule that you want. We're going to have to hire people. And uh, it's always been about the money in this in this sort of service. If you want the service, you can get it. You got to pay for it. It's got to come out of your operating budget. And, and, you know, people people think it's all every every department's like the NYPD, where you seem to have vast sums. No, there's small departments with 25 law enforcement officers, you know, and they have a real tight, tight budget. They, they couldn't do it. They got to call in a state a state like police and have them do it. They need those resources. And so it's all about the money. And uh, it's all about the time. These things take you know, uh, several months. That's why in the Kohlberger case, people are wondering, how come, what's going on? It doesn't seem like they're making any advances. Well, they were, 
you didn't hear about it because they're sending everything out to be tested in terms of DNA, all the phone dumps that they've got to do, all the tower searches. And that stuff takes minimum six weeks, probably at least two months. So it's time and money. No, absolutely. Go ahead, Melanie. <laughs> Google's an amazing thing. So I did a Google search earlier and I found out that in 2010 or 12, Suffolk County had the highest, the 12th highest property taxes in the country. So for us to say that they didn't have the money, you know, I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's expensive, but, you know, we have the 12th highest taxes, property taxes in the country out of 1800 and something counties in the United States. So, and then Melody, I th- I you know, if money is an issue, then God help Melody, us all. Cause we're, I think, I think the Suffolk County police are either the first or second highest paid police yeah. in New York state. You are right. I, think, I, I actually think they're second. And, uh, there's a, there's a department in Rockland County. I think Clarkstown is number one. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and then uh, Suffolk is two, I think. So, you're right. They have the high, they may have high taxes, but their police get paid very well, and yeah. uh, you know so that that is a factor, uh, folks. You know this all of this stuff. I mean, we're, we're sort of trying to give you uh, a sort of a, a look into what a homicide investigation is, and it, it's a big undertaking. Even a single murder is a huge undertaking. And then when you talk about a case like this where there's 10 bodies uh, at a location and f- four of them identified as the Gilgo four and three, someone is arrested for this probable cause and solid ev- evidence to pin on Rex Ewerman. And the, the, the work and the amount of people and the science and the cell phone technology and the DNA and all of the work involved is is a, is a huge, huge thing. Schmitty, thank you so much for the five super stick. Quite the lively show tonight. You all bring personalities that I admire and respect. Thank you for the dedication, Schmitty. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, and believe it or not, I'm just kidding about Melanie. I love Melanie, and I, I like the interaction. I don't want everyone to agree with me. Maybe I just will a, refuse to come back. How about I, that? I'm not, I'll just say no. I'm, I'm not an me. agreeable guy. <laughs> well, now, now, she's, now she's putting a... <laughs> Listen, I get very emotional about this case, okay? I have five children, and I had five children when these four bodies were found. And these were the beaches that I would take my children to. So I'm sorry if it pisses me off, but it really pisses me off. And to think that this guy's been roaming around for 13 years, this six foot six ogre that they had a description on in 2010. And I'm worried about taking my kids to the beach, you know, because because the Suffolk County Police Commissioner is hiding his own porn stash and his own sex toys in his back seat. I got a problem with that. Sorry. Not sorry. Yeah, no, that's not a standard uh, police procedure. That's for sure. Uh, and, you know, look. I, I didn't want to make that the whole story because the, really the investigation and the great work that they did is really the story. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer, and you can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Joe is also 
a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and we appreciate everything that he has done for us. Well, when, guys, when he says, "Poor Professor Mike tonight," <laughs> poor Professor poor Mike. Mike. I don't know. Mike's just, just you just want to get involved. No, it's like, I'm just sitting it's like back here. <laughs> nah, you know, there's Mike's Mike's mellow. He picks his spots, and uh, that's fine. Yeah. Look, I, Melanie, believe me, I have no problem with uh, people that disagree with me. That's fine. That's what this is all about. You know, if I wanted everyone to agree with me, I would just. Uh, have some mannequins in those other two spots. <laughs> but so, you know, folks, again, a lot of things happening in this case. Still more unanswered questions, lots of unanswered questions that hopefully will be answered in the next weeks, months, and probably year or years. This case is going to take a long time, I believe, to see a courtroom, you know, but in the meantime, there's lots of more investigative work to do. And because of that, we're going to keep working on this case. Uh, and uh, we appreciate all you guys following us. Pierre, thank you so much for the $20 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Sorry, not sorry. Let it be fixed. <laughs> I, I, like, I like that, Pierre. I like your teddy bear, too. That, that's great. Um, Mike, final thoughts. Final thoughts, uh, and I say this a lot for everyone uh, who's watching, is the patience. Just have the patience. Uh, as you pointed out, this is going to be a while. We're not going to see perhaps a trial, if there's going to be a trial, till, uh, uh, probably, I'm guessing, somewhere between uh, Christmas, right around Christmas 2024, perhaps something like that, if, if we're lucky. It's going to be a while. The uh, task force is working full steam ahead you know their job is only half done they still have a lot more work to do and a lot of other um states uh departments uh have their work to do uh, to see if he's connected to any of their missing persons uh patience uh, is a virtue and i think if everybody has patience uh that's the best thing right now melanie your final words this case is about Amber Costello, Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, and Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and we can't forget that. <clears throat> and good thing this monster is locked up. And let's hope that we can solve these other bodies that um, were all found on Gilgo Beach and uh, connect them to him. Because God forbid we have two serial killers dumping in the same place on Long Island. That would be, what are the odds of that, really? I don't know. But um Let's not forget about that. Justice for the victims, always. Absolutely. And Melanie, you just stole my thunder because I was just about to put this up on the screen. Sorry. The victims identified Maureen Brainerd Bonds, who they're about to put the case together and add that uh, indictment to the uh, to the three that he's already been arrested for. Melissa Bartolome, Amberlyn Costello, and Megan Waterman. Again, folks, it's always about the victims and you know i said it a million times in the book practical homicide investigation that used to be the bible of homicide investigation the author vernon gebreth always says we work for god and we work to try to find out the monsters that took took someone's life the monster or the monsters that took someone's life and that's that's who we who we work for so folks on behalf of police off the cuff Real Crime Stories, I want to thank everyone for coming by tonight. I want to thank Professor Michael Geary, the, the voice of reason. And I want to thank attorney, mother, actress, 
mother of five, Melanie Little, for joining us tonight. Thanks, Melanie. Everyone else, have a great night, and God bless. Good night. Good night. One episode, just ain't enough.